Hello and welcome back to another episode of On Spec. I am your host, Ryan Barath. Well, uh, that was a very exciting finish to the BMW Championship this week on the PGA Tour. Uh, you know, coming down the stretch, definitely made for some very entertaining golf, that's for sure. I know there was some discussion about trees and length of the golf course and the conditions, and the conditions I think were raved about by the pros, uh, even though, you know, up until uh, Sunday that there was very few scores uh, under par relative, like, for the entire week. Obviously, there were under par rounds, but uh, I guess just overall it was just a fantastic event. And you add on top of that what happened coming down the stretch. You had Dustin Johnson needing to make a putt on the last hole. Everyone wants to see that. Everyone wants to see what's on the line, what's he putting for. It's a big one after not hitting a great drive, and he drains it. It was crazy. And then they go to the playoff, and DJ hits a tree, Rom hits it in the rough. They both don't give themselves hugely makeable putts, and then John Rom drains a 66-footer, and he is the BMW champion, which was very impressive uh, just to watch. And it was really exciting. Like, I do watch golf on Sundays. I see what's coming down the stretch. And depending on the tournament, I kind of check in and check out. I got a lot of things going on. Um, but I do watch it. And, you know, coming down those last few holes, I thought, okay, there's a lot of interesting things going on here. First of all, you had John Rahm picked up his ball yesterday. Uh, that was a penalty shot. So if it wasn't for that kind of brain fart, who would, who knows what would have happened, right? You got the whole butterfly effect of that going on. Uh, goes out today, shoots a low number, puts himself in the clubhouse lead. Uh, DJ matches on the 18th hole. No, again, if um, Rom didn't pick that ball up, you know he could have potentially won. Anyways, you go to the playoff hole, and then after a bomb drive, had to hit, had to hit a shot of the rough. That became a lot more difficult because the greens were firm. You saw that ball roll out a lot, and then somehow he made that putt. And well, that's how the tournament finished, and it was very exciting. I will totally admit I completely jumped out of my seat because I did not expect that. I thought maybe if he got within five feet, it would be very impressive. But then we remind ourselves that we're watching the best players in the world, and, you know, those are the kind of finishes that we get. So um, about the show today, I'm very excited for this one. This is the third time having him on the show, and that is Mizuno's Chris Bichelle, which is uh, very exciting. You know, we, we've had conversations about design before, and if you haven't heard those ones, you can go back into the archives and, and take a listen. Uh, then I've also, uh, we talked last time, again, was before that, was we talked about the 919 series, the JPX. Now we're on the 921, and there's some cool products coming out, and very excited about it. They're obviously extremely excited. they got a lot of stuff going on as far as technology. I have used the, uh, the Hot Metals from last year, or the, yeah, last year, the Hot Metal Pros. Uh, I played those a lot. And I loved, I really liked them because it was something where, as as I've talked many times before, I love a good plate iron. I love a good small player's cavity iron. And with that iron, they were able to really shrink down the profile and create something that was extremely forgiving. I can say so far this year, my course that I played is only nine holes, although I will occasionally play 18. Uh, the best nine holes that I've had this year was 300 par, and I put those back in the bag one day, and uh, I felt like I didn't really miss a green. And... Uh, that's what you get when you're using a bigger golf club. Again, I, I love blade irons. I talk a lot about them. But, you know, when it comes to as far as fitting and uh, benefiting golfers' games, clubs like the JPX series are something where 
you know, it's again, as far as the, the JPX hot metal goes, that's Mizuno's biggest seller because it fits the most golfers. Um, and it's exciting because I've worked in fitting before. I've worked with golfers when you see them pick up yardage, they pick up height, especially with their irons because, you know, it's, it's more difficult to spin modern-day golf balls. And if you have a slower speed, it's harder to get that out of, out of an iron. And clubs like this, clubs like... Um, like the G700 from Ping, all these irons, um, 410, all these irons together are, that's just a couple examples, obviously, but they're designed to be more forgiving to help golfers enjoy the game a lot more. And I think it's really cool. And then not only that, they also have clubs in the same series that are available to tour players and that benefit tour players and benefit lower handicaps. And they kind of got something for everyone in this line. And I wanted to talk to Chris about that, but part of, uh, a, of a, an article that will be coming out uh, later this week on golfwrx.com and this is part of the Golf WX Radio Network is about the elements of design and you can find this conversation as well in video format uh, on the site as uh, linked with the article that is coming out um, and I'll send it out as well so you can follow along on uh, Twitter, RDS Brath same thing on Instagram as well RDS Brath and then also on spec WRX on Instagram too, which is the dedicated shows page. Uh, also pay attention this week because on Instagram I will do another question and answer. I didn't do one uh, this past week, but I'm excited to bring that format back. It's always very popular and maybe we'll bring some of those questions to the show. Uh, but for this week, I know it's a longer intro, but I you know kind of wanted to talk about a few things before I get into it. Um, and that is our conversation with Chris. But one last thing I want to mention. If you are still in the market for used golf clubs or even new clubs, maybe you've played a number of rounds this year and realized, you know what, it is time to upgrade. Well, our friends at Golf Avenue, uh, golfwx.com slash golf avenue, they have through the link there, you can trade in your old golf clubs and you can get additional trade-in value on your clubs by going through that. Also, by being a listener of the show, you also get additional discounts on clubs that you are purchasing through golfavenue.ca. I know I'm a big fan of just shopping used clubs in general. I know this year I'm having a lot of friends getting back into the game, which is something we discussed a lot about um, in 2020. And, you know, they're, they're the place that I send a lot of my friends to because they offer great value. They do quick shipping. And you can find a lot of stuff in there. You can find newer stuff that's going to be still offer a lot of value compared to brand new. And you can find something that are a few years old that's going to offer a ton of value. So that is uh, golfwrx.com slash golfavenue or golfavenue.ca. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce my interview with Chris Vichel from Mizuno Golf. Have a great week, everybody. Perfect. Welcome to Golf WRX, Chris Vichel of Mizuno Golf. Chris, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing good. It's been a, it's been a busy few weeks. You know, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of stuff going on in the golf industry, and it's been it's been very busy. You know, it's one of those things we ne didn't necessarily expect, but we hoped for, and we've kind of really seen this this exponential growth in just rounds played and the discussion around equipment, uh, new and old. So, but today we're here to talk about new. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's amazing. You talked about the exponential growth, just the numbers that are coming out and not only rounds played, but equipment sales, everything are 
astonishing. So yeah, you know, if you had asked us six months ago what we'd be talking about right now, we might say a lot of closeout product, but that's not the case at all. So we're excited about showing off all the new stuff and talking to you about it. So speaking of new stuff, let's dive right into the new irons because you just released the newest JPX series, the 921. I have been a big fan of JPX. I actually played the Hot Metal Pros last year, which I, I loved. Um, and how that line has changed from you know, just a couple of years ago or a few years ago now when it was first introduced to mm -hmm. where it has come today. Well, I mean the modern series. I know JPX has been around for now 10 years. Yeah, so I mean, it, it depends on how far back you want to look in terms of how far the evolution has come. So if you, I mean, if you go back to the start of JPX, it was amazing how it just started out, it was two products. It was the JPX 800 and what was then the JPX 800 Pro. It evolved to there to the Pro turned into the Forged because we added a tour on top of that. And then this last go round with the 919s, we added the Hot Metal Pro, which you said you played. So it's it's been a really cool thing to see how the JPX line has evolved from what started as kind of game improvement golf clubs to now just really where Mizuno tests out and tries out a lot of the technological advancements like some of the things that aren't quite I don't, I don't know if the word is aren't quite proven enough for MP yet but some things that we can test out and really try out to uh to just advance golf club manufacturing as a whole. So with the new 921 line, we've got four models. We've got the 921 Tour, the 921 Forge, the 921 Hot Metal, and the 921 Hot Metal Pro, each of which is a replacement of the previous, but each of which had its own unique thing that we tried to design different from the previous. Yeah, and if you go back, like I remember the MX series, which, which was before, and things like the uh, the MX 300, which was a, which was like the first mm -hmm. kind of foray into like a, a larger forged golf club, but mm -hmm. still utilizing grain flow forging. So it had the shape and the profile of a larger golf club. It had the MOI of a larger golf club, but it didn't have the technology that would have, you know, created a lot of extra ball speed compared to say clubs in the category at the time. But it still offered that MP player something that was a little bit more forgiving, which I think. As someone who was working in the industry, like selling a lot of golf clubs at the time, mm -hmm. that was that to me was like the the core idea of that golf golf club. Moving into the, I think the A twenty five tour mm -hmm. and A fifty two are clubs that when people ask me if we're looking for a forged golf club, we're looking for a great value. I still people send people in that direction if they can find them because right. it is such a good product that uh, happens to work for a lot of players and. You know, we're not going to get the ball speed or the forgiveness out of something that would, that is newer, but it still offers great value because there has been this constant evolution within the line to where we are today, which is a tour level product that can be played by low handicaps, a forge product, which can be played by almost any level of golfer that the mm -hmm. hot metal pro, which you mentioned, and then the long irons, which you've seen like very popular on tour right. as well. And then the hot metal, which is, I think, which a lot of people, I think, you know, Players irons get a lot of attention, kind of like supercars, but families today mm -hmm. sell a lot more than supercars. And in reality, the hot metal is the one that, you know, I think makes up what a lot of golfers are really actually going to play or work into. For sure. And, and you see that all the time with our, with our lineup of a player thinks they want one golf club or thinks they want one particular model. But then our biggest goal, and, and you'll see it from how we talk about our line, how we display it on our website, how we talk about it um, on social media. Our goal is to not say, 
hey, look at this new one model. This is for everybody. Our goal is to say, look at our lineup and then get you to a fitting cart, get you to a fitter and then see where you land from there because you could land somewhere totally different than where you think you could land and you could land with half the clubs of the set you thought and then another half from another set. So it, it's really interesting how, um, how the marketing and how we push it has, has, has changed and evolved just to try to make sense of the four different models and make sense of which players fit into which one. So you made a good point. So it's going to work into like my first question there. I think it's like you've had this discussion before. <laughs> I think you're the third, third time guest on, on the, on the show, which would be, uh, I guess the record at this point. <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> the Alec but, Baldwin of the podcast, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. So uh, with that in mind, uh, when it comes to building sets and families of sets, like the JPX family of irons, just like the MP family of irons, they're designed to obviously blend and transition from one to another with, with a certain amount of understanding that you can go from one club to the other. How much of that factors in from the original concept of design to creating the final product? So when we're creating, and, and I, I'll answer that by kind of going all the way back to when we very first start a project, we'll have a whole load of goals in terms of where it lives within the market, in terms of, you know, what price point are we trying to hit, what handicap level, what technologies are we going to bring in. But equally important to that is how does it fit into the fitting world? So not only how, does it, how can you custom fit it, but how can you mix it within our set? Because everything we do, like I said right off the bat, is everything is mixed off or everything's based off of how it fits in our fit cart. So with every part of the design, you see it a ton on the MP side and even more than you used to on the JPX side. We're trying to make sure that everything can flow properly. And that allows you to do a lot of fun things because, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll speak, for example, like the JPX Forge model. If the goal was to sell everybody who bought a JPX Forge 7 iron, if the goal was to sell them a pitching wedge through a 4 iron, then you'd design that set a lot different than if you were designing it to say, let's see which ones fit you best and let's see how we can mix and match. By that I mean, everybody would have smaller scoring irons. Every set would get pretty big and pretty offset in the long irons, just because when you get stronger lofts, you need playability. But the fact that we really encourage that comboing, that mixing, bringing in a hot metal pro or bringing in a hot metal on top of a forge or a tour set means that we can bring the forge set and let it live in its own world, let the tour live in its own world in terms of head size, and then let you decide where the dots connect. And where that becomes valuable is for something like a forge. So if you're talking about who's going to play a JPX 921 Forge 7 iron, that person likely might play a JPX hot metal or hot metal pro four iron. But if you're talking about who plays a JPX 921 or seven iron, that person may likely play a forged long iron. So it's really cool because everything is designed to be mixed and matched. Obviously the loft and offset becomes a conversation and there, and we, that's our job as WRX, as, as Mizuno to educate you in terms of how you combo those, but they're really designed to be mixed and matched from top to bottom. And yeah, I think that's, that's a good way to talk about it because it is uh, a huge fitting element. And I think, although there is still a lot of people going out and, and buying off the rack or buying something because they, they hit it from a friend or whatever, and, and that happens all the time. And you know, I'd say most of the time you're going to get 85% of the way there. If you've hit it outside and you really like it, I, I understand that. 
But for those looking for ultimate performance and like the ultimate combination and fine tuning of their golf game, it's like, I always use a, a suit analogy. You can go in and buy mm -hmm. a, like just a, a, like a, a gen generic suit you can get a suit and get it tailored or you can go in and get a bespoke suit. And if you're mm -hmm. going out there and if you've tried something and you know it, you're probably going to get that tailored suit. But if you really want to get absolutely everything out of it, you're going to get a bespoke suit and you're going to look like a million bucks. And hopefully you're in that sense, from a golf club perspective, you're going to score better as well. Um, totally. Now, how much does the, I know you, you guys have done a lot with uh, uh, the shaft optimizer. Mm -hmm. What is the percentage of your say sold sets of fitted versus things that are sold off the rack or into pro shops that people just buy? You know, you see it every single year where it becomes more and more fitted. And, you know, when I, when I first started with Mizuno, which was 2004, I'd say we were, again, I think we were a little bit ahead of the game. Us and Ping, I think we're early adopters to the fitting world and got really behind it really early. And back then we were call it 60, 40 stock to custom. And then every single year you see it become more custom, more custom, more custom, more custom. 2019, I think we were close, really close to 80% of our golf clubs sold were custom golf clubs. You know, that, that does so many things for, you know, if you want to look at the industry as a whole, like in everything, it helps the customer because they're getting a golf club that fits them better. They're going to score better. It helps the retailer because the retailer doesn't have to keep as many on the wall. You know, that it, then it, it lands on us in terms of being able to build on time, build quickly, turn it around, build accurately, and just get every, have the options available. So our goal, if we could sell a hundred percent fitted golf clubs, that would be awesome. But not <laughs> everybody buys like that just because you, you know, you'll have some people who are, have gone through a fitting are very happy with what they got fitted into and say, all right, I know I'm one up. I know I'm a dynamic gold AMT S 300. I know I play this shaft, this length, whatever. So we, we want to encourage fitting at some form or another, but we, we really want to make sure that as many people as possible are getting fit. Yeah. And we see that uh, I could compare my own uh, experience, like retail around 2005, 2006, I uh, was still working in like a big box retail space and our back room, which mm -hmm. was like the, 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 the room beyond, which we kind of called it, you'd walk mm -hmm. into it, there's head covers everywhere and there was just racks and racks of box golf clubs. Yep. Someone would come in, you'd go for, you'd, you'd talk them, talk them through a set, they'd hit some golf clubs and then they'd find one that works the best. Maybe we'd tweak liar loft or something or they'd, we'd do like an upsell on grips. You know, it's, mm -hmm. not gonna lie, I'm not going to sit here and sugarcoat. That's what you do if someone didn't like it. You know, you maybe yeah. do a deal on some grips. You do some lie loft and they're at the store with their box of golf clubs in an hour and they come back the next day and get them. Nowadays, you walk to a retail store, those rooms are almost gone. Mm -hmm. There's maybe one set on the wall. There may be another set in the back just like as another option. But other than that, everything's directed to the fit cart. Everything's directed to the fitting area. And I think golfers at the, at the end of the day are benefiting from that. You know, you might have to wait a couple of weeks for your golf clubs, but you're getting something that's better already. You're exactly right. And that's the whole thing is what's the threshold of how long somebody wants to wait when they're making a purchase. So that's where obviously COVID's turned some things around and, and put some delays on everybody. But in general, Mizuno Golf USA works on two business days. Once we get the order, it's out the door in two business days. We're a little behind that right now just because we're playing some catch up, but if you told somebody you can buy this one right here or two days from now, we can ship you a one that's really dialed in for you. doesn't cost any extra. There's, yeah. there's no reason not to do that. 
And in many cases, it costs less because if it's a seven piece set on the wall and someone only needs a five pieces, that's a, a yep. great way that someone's going to say, oh, well, yeah, no, but you don't have to buy golf clubs you're not going to use. And that was my always, right. that was always my up, my, my, my tactic when two were looking at stuff on the wall at a retail mm -hmm. store. You're like, you know, you could buy one less of these golf clubs and it would cost the same, like it would cost less and you'd get exactly what you want. You just got to wait a little bit. And generally now, exactly. as you say, the, the time to wait is not that long. Mm-hmm. Um, now the one club I really wanted to talk about, um, is because I want to talk, I, you and your position within Mizuno and your career, uh, has, you know, started from like, I guess, test engineer Correct. to, yep. to where you are now. Right. And we've had that discussion. So if people are listening, you can go back and listen to those discussions on our golf WX radio network. You can find them on the on spec podcast. Um, but with the, uh, the forged, is a perfect mm -hmm. example of constant evolution from something that was, say, a little bit longer heel toe, more square to fit into the line from like an 850 perspective mm -hmm. to now where it is the 921 forged is it's a lot smaller, it's a lot more compact. And within this smaller golf club, you've got more technology than has ever been in that line of clubs. Mm -hmm. You're exactly right. I mean, that's, to look at where that club started. So I'll, I'll just go all the way back to even, you can even trace that one back really to MX20, MX23, MX25, MX200, which were all one piece grain flow forged with an extra level of forgiveness. So some sort, some sort of, we call it like pro, post processing that happens after the forging to make it more forgiving. So again, go back 15 years, the MX-23 was a fantastic golf club. We sold a lot of those. It was a golf club that was forged, gave you good feel, but had a good amount of forgiveness built into it. Um, going into the JPX line, when, when the MX kind of transitioned to JPX with the JPX 800 Pro, that had, it was again, it was a 1025 forging, so one piece forging, but instead of milling a pocket cavity, what we actually did is we milled an area to expand the rebound area. And that was the first time we had actually tried to push the COR. We had tried to push the ball speed aspect of it. And that was the, you know, the, the shift from just make it more forgiving to make it more forgiving and hotter. And then that's the evolution that you've seen that JPX Forge model make from year after year. So from the 800 to the 825 Pro, a small evolution to the 850, we introduced a boron material Boron material was able to allow us to go even thinner to make it more forgiving um, and make it even hotter. And then we went to our back milling on our JPX 900 and 919 line. And now with the 921, we actually changed material again to try to unlock even more, uh, more speed out of it. So we went from a 1025 boron to a chromoly 4120 material. So it's a stronger material, still forged, but we're able to go even thinner, get faster, get hotter. So just from the start of that golf club to where it is now, in terms of ball speed and COR, it's come miles. But what's cool is what's lived around it. Because with the original ones, it lived in a world where there weren't a lot of golf clubs around it in terms of our lineup. So we had our JPX 800 cast and we had the JPX 800 Pro. But now if you look at the 921 line, there's a tour model on the lower end. There's a hot metal pro on the other end. So there, it can live more in exactly what it wants to be. So the evolution is it's gotten more technologically advanced, but at the same time, because we've added clubs on the, on the more forgiving side, we've actually shrunk it in size. So the 921 forged, 
got hotter, got faster, and got smaller, got thinner, got sleeker. So it's cool how it's really evolved in terms of like everything about the golf club to where if you compare the 921 Forge to an MX-23, they're nothing alike, even though it, it's the same, it's the great, great grandfather of it. Yeah, and I guess that it comes down to when you look at the new line and you were to compare them over generations, like you can draw a Venn diagram with like everything that exists now and kind of see how they transition from one to the other. And you really didn't see that before. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know I wrote about that recently on, on our site, Golf 3X, uh, about how that is the biggest trend we've seen from OEMs across the board is how, you know, it used to be, well, this is for game improvement. This is for the player. And this, like this one is in the middle for like most people. And now mm -hmm. most companies are offering three to four lines, but they, they really do transition so smoothly towards each other to allow golfers to, you know, because not everyone needs a big super game improvement pitching wedge or nine iron because they, they might not struggle with that part of their game. But as mm -hmm. they get to the long irons, like anyone else, um, you know, they need that little extra height and spin. Actually, it's kind of funny because I think it was recently on, uh, I don't know if you listened to it, Shotgun Start podcast. Big, yeah. Uh big fan. Uh, is Andy, Andy mentioned something about how clubs and how the way they're targeted to people and how, you know, for most average golfers, the LPGA tour is probably a better example of how to build a golf bag and how to transition golf clubs mm -hmm. versus some of the pros, because just there's, they're, they're, I'm not comparing handicap. I'm not comparing skill of, I don't want to get into that argument, but <laughs> I, uh, I've settled it many times before, but what I'm saying is from a dynamics, purely from a dynamic standpoint, yep. a speed, pers speed uh, perspective, you're seeing those like transitioning into those hybrids and in those long irons, but still want that precision in the short irons. And that's where I think uh, the women's game is so much more fascinating to, to really watch from an equipment side of things for regular golfers. And then when you get into the higher speed players, you can really see that more at the PGA tour level guys as well. Absolutely. I mean, the, the women's game, it's, they're amazing, but their launch parameters are not as unbelievable as the guy's side. So in terms of the ball speed, the spin rates, the launch angles they can generate, translate a lot more to what people are playing and what, what's out there. And even then, like you look at the women's game, you see some bombers out there and you see some really good players who aren't bombers, where it feels like on the, on the men's tour, it's almost like the non-bombers are somewhat getting weeded out lately is what it feels like. So in terms of setting up your bag, what they do and how they put a bag together is absolutely something that you should look at and something you should pay attention to. Ultimately, when you look at specs of golf clubs, I know you're a big time spec guy so you, you respect <laughs> that a ton is and what was happened with lofts and how lofts have gotten so crazy ultimately if a golf club is 21 degrees it's 21 degrees and it takes a certain amount of launch angle and spin rate to keep a 21 degree golf club in the air you can do so much with center of gravity but ultimately there's a there's a speed point that needs to be brought to the table and if you don't have that speed then it doesn't matter what the design is that 21 degrees isn't for you. So you should look to what's the best 21 degree golf club to get you the parameters you need. Yeah. It's, and it's like, again, the women's game is very fascinating other than like we can use Brandon Todd as the example on the PGA tour uh, or the one that I always loved when it was a Mizuno guy was um, Brian Gay. To me, Brian Gay was like just someone who like stuck it so like ridiculously close to his irons all the time, put the lights out but was not necessarily a bomber by any means. And then from the LPGA tour side, you have someone like Stacey Lewis, 
who's not an overly long player, but just recently won. And then you have someone like Maria Fossi, who is like close to 110 miles an hour with the driver, which would like blow the doors off how far I'm going to hit it. So uh, it's, it's very interesting how we see that uh, both levels of that in the, in the women's game. So after a uh, temporary technical issue, we are back. Uh, what we were discussing was the fact that uh, talking about parameters and talking about um, how we see players like uh, the example I used on the men's tour was obviously brought, uh, Brent Todd recently, like well, not mm -hmm. one of the longer players. Uh, one of my historically favorite players who I believe played you know, for a very long time was Brian Gay. Mm -hmm. Ridiculous ball striker, put yep. lights out, but was not necessarily like the longest guy on tour. Um, and then you have the like, very different games on the LPGA tour with Stacey Lewis, who just recently won again. Um, who's not like the longest player. And then you also have someone like Maria Fossey, who is an mm -hmm. absolute bomber. She, right. She blasted way by me out on the golf course. So um, you have all these different contrasting examples of players. And you guys really do a good job of helping golfers understand how to put their sets together, which was what we were talking about. And then also how to find the right shaft with the optimizer. Yeah, that's one of the things that's been really cool about the optimizer where where it started was simply a what's the right shaft for your six iron, which was the fitting club at the time. How it's evolved and the data that we've collected and how much we've learned from it, it's turned into a full bag recommendation tool to now where we're measuring so many different things with the gyro that's built in, with, this, uh, with all the strain gauges and, and accelerometers built in. We understand how you're delivering the club to the ball to now we can recommend what shaft you should carry, but we also can understand at what level based off of your angle of attack, your shaft lean, how you deliver the, the club into the ball, where you're going to start struggling with loft. And where you start struggling with loft is where you start might need to address what club goes in on the long iron side. So our shaft optimizer software is incredible how it'll recommend not only what shaft to play, but then it'll say, you also need to switch this four iron for a more forgiving one or switch this five iron or depending on who the player is, it'll tell you how to put that set together. Yeah. And I think that's a, it's, it's cool because, you know, for like, depending on the fitting, like if someone's getting fit, they're not going to have, maybe not have access to launch monitor, but they'll be able to see data outside. And mm -hmm. that's a really a smart tool because one of the questions I get all the time and for me, when I get, when I do like Instagram questions and things like that, and I'm trying to answer fitting questions for golfers is, can I put a different shaft to my three or four iron to like launch it higher and get extra carry? And like the biggest mm -hmm. thing I tell people is like, no, <laughs> You can try, you can try, uh, and right. you, you can get some, maybe a little bit of extra speed with something lighter or something that's designed to launch higher. But in reality, it comes down to uh, what you mentioned earlier about like the club's specific loft and how, mm -hmm. you know, once you get to a certain loft, if you don't have the speed to create that, regardless of face technology, you're not going to get what you're probably going to get out of it. And, the, and that's one of the reasons why I always tell people like, you know, I can recommend it and you can try it if you're interested, but I think that you should probably look at club head technology and shape and size and those kind of things to actually change your launch parameters than just focus on a, a simple shaft change because how that club transitions and how it works is what's really going to help you create the proper angle of descent and is going to help lower dispersion because as, as we know, and as they've, it's, it's become part of the golf vernacular now, mm -hmm. truly in the mainstream is strokes gained yep. and how to, play and actually score better. Absolutely. And yeah, you're right that the ultimate 
judge of whether you can handle a, a loft or not is your speed. So like, you know, a 46 degree or 47 degree pitching wedge, you could have a 50 mile an hour head speed and you can handle it, but then that falls off. So it's like, you can band-aid a couple of things when you're getting close to that transition area. So you could band-aid somebody who call it 105 mile an hour, trying to get to like a 19 or 18 degrees. Maybe you could mask something with a little bit lighter, a little bit softer kicking shaft or something like that. But ultimately, it's going to eventually you're going to catch up. Like not everyone could play a one iron. If you could mask everything with shafts and specs, everyone could play a one iron. And we know that's not the case. Yeah. Uh, speaking of that point, I've been playing, I've been playing some very poor golf recently uh-huh. and I, I decided to grab my MP 14 one iron, which I have as part of the Ooh. full, full set to take out. I brought a persimmon three wood and that, uh, that iron just to like, you know, try and hopefully hit the sweet spot. And with my launch monitor, I could not believe, because I hadn't done it in a very long time, and I just I hadn't actually taken this club to hit on my launch monitor that I got recently. I was carrying it 165 yards. Like, I just right. couldn't, could not get the height. I was like, I could have swore I would have hit this further than that. At least, like, I would have carried it 200 yards, even though it would have been really low. And, like, right. anything that wasn't slightly perfect, it was, like, 165, 170 maybe. And I thought, oh, this is silly. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that. that I, that's good on you for trying that out. <laughs> it was a good way to just to completely punish myself. Um, <laughs> now, speaking of strokes gained and scoring, the other thing that I, I really wanted to touch on, as well as evolution and technology, are the new wedges. Okay. Because you've got a multi-piece, it's a forged wedge, but you're doing, doing something from a, a weight-shifting perspective that we've seen in wedges, but not mm-hmm. in something that is uh, – traditionally shaped you know right and, and not in something that uh, really looks like a like a, a club that you would expect from Mizuno first off let's put yep. it that way right um, we've seen companies go out of their way to produce like very unique looking wedges um, mm-hmm. designed to move mass around but nothing that does what this does the way it does it yeah well and and it's funny you talk about evolution and product going from product to product I love to tell the evolution of this story from concept to final product because the evolution that the ES21 has taken from initial sketch and initial design goals to where the final product is, it's come a long way to an almost unrecognizable product. So the whole design goal of it was how can we put an exact center of the score lines, center of gravity? And that's something that, you know, the average guy doesn't even realize a wedge doesn't have that. You'd think it would. You'd think all your golf clubs, oh, if I hit it in the middle, I'm hitting the sweet spot. But the the traditional design of a wedge with a long hosel, with a lot of loft on it, a relatively short heel-to-toe head length, the center of gravity lives significantly towards the heel, as much as 10, 15 millimeters away from the center of the score lines. So our goal was, can we make something with a dead center sweet spot? The, the idea behind that is one, when you hit it in the middle, you're hitting off the sweet spot, but also because the wedge is the area of the game, you know, the short game where you want as much consistency as possible. So keeping your impacts as close to center and as close to the sweet spot as possible is going to minimize your dispersion. It's going to help your strokes gain. It's going to help you hit more consistent shots, get it closer to the ball, closer to the hole more often. So what started as, okay, a really simple design goal, engineering it's difficult because how can you move the mass 
10, 15 millimeters. I mean, you talk about on a driver where it's 460 cc's, we can move it two or three millimeters and that's still a big, a big amount. When you're talking a head that's half the size of a driver in terms of heel to toe length and moving it five times as much, you got to do crazy things on it. So it started out as a golf club that did not look like something that Mizuno should produce. I'm not going to lie. Like it was something that we were like, man, what, how do we even forecast this? Like, is this worth bringing out? And then as we worked with the manufacturing side, we worked with the engineering side, we kind of started to say, what if we brought this form of the construction over? What if we did this? What if we moved a couple pieces like this? What if it was two pieces as opposed to one? You know, could that unlock some things? So ultimately we got to a golf club that when you look at it from behind, it's still a little bit funky. It's still big and still thick. But when you look at it address, it's a Mizuno. Like it looks the part. Yet what it does in terms of moving the center of gravity is something that we've never seen on a wedge from ourselves or from even some of the funky ones out there. Now that's, so you mentioned a good point. It was something I wanted to touch on with irons, but I think this is actually probably the better way to discuss it. It'll probably leak back into irons anyways. But when it comes to developing product or using pro defining or using processes to create a product or a final product who really pushes that now i know you guys have a partnership exclusive partnership with the forging company that you work with um but do they say that you guys like look we've worked with this material we know we can forge it do you think there's like an application there because i'm sure i think pretty sure i understand like like chua doesn't just do golf clubs they do like high speed train parts and like bullet train parts and all kinds of things Mm -hmm. that need also need uh, a lot of precision involved in them. So are they bringing this type of technology to you guys or are you going to them and saying, this is what we think can happen? Because we see it with shafts, a lot of shafts and a lot of materials come from the aerospace. They're making a lot more planes than they are golf shafts. Let's be real about that, right? So there's, that is what's pushing golf shaft technology companies to be able to innovate. Is it, is it silly example, but is it bullet trains pushing golf clubs? Or are you going to them and really saying, let's work together on co-engineering this? It's an interesting thing because we've had this partnership and this relationship with Chuo for so long that honestly, it's a push from both sides. So it's a, it's such a great relationship that we're developing things together. Any of the Mizuno forging patents don't just have Mizuno's name on them. They have Chuo and Mizuno. And it's the same way with both things. So in terms of are we getting technologies from the bullet train or from the automotive side? Not as much just because those pieces traditionally are significantly larger and don't have quite the, quite as many weight limits, uh, limitations that the golf club has. So it's funny when you, if you go through the forging house and actually do a tour of it, which obviously I've been fortunate enough to do a number of times, the most experienced forgers, aren't the ones making the pieces for the bullet train. It's the ones making the golf clubs because they're the smallest, the most precise that require the most level of like intricacy in terms of how that, how that billet's placed in the mold and how it's, how it's worked after that. But to go in terms of how do we develop and how do we advance forging? What we'll do is obviously from the engineering side, from the 3d world, will say, hey, look, our simulation said we can go two millimeters thinner and we can make this weight super light. (laughs) But then there's the reality of it of can you make that? So what we do is we're always pushing back and forth where we say, you know, for example, with a 1025E pure select mild carbon steel, that's what we use for our MP20, our HMB, excuse me, not our HMB, but our MMC, our JPX Tour. 
we know just how thin we can get over a given area and maintain durability. So if the goal is to just maintain durability and not have a break, then we know what to do. But when you start pushing the limits of saying, well, I need the COR to be this, I need the ball speed to come off this fast, then we know it's almost like you have to reverse engineer of, okay, if we want to get a ball speed to here, then we know that we have to have a thickness of this. And if we know we have to have a thickness of this, we need to have a material that has a durability or, ha or can with lo withstand loads and strains of this level. So then it becomes, let's talk to Chuo, let's talk to the um, metallurgical side, because they've got a metallurgical team that they work with there as well, to say, what could we do to a 1025? Or what could we do in terms of a chromoly material, in terms of the carbon content? How could we manipulate that to help us increase the strength or increase the, the malleability of it or something? So it really is a, a partnership where we go back and forth and we push each other. Oftentimes you'll see that the engineering side will get frustrated because we think we could have gotten a little bit thinner, but in the manufacturing side, they want to be a little bit safer. And then each, that's why you see from, and you talk about evolution, from generation to generation, sometimes with the same material, we can get more out of it because we've then proven we know how to work this material a little bit better and we can evolve it a step further. But going back to like the 921 Forge, we really had gotten to the point where we couldn't get much more out of boron material in terms of COR. So that's where you have to make the change. So it, you know, there's evolutions in how you develop it. There's evolutions from generation to generation. And then ultimately you have to then re, um, completely start over at some point and bring in new materials, but it works from our side and from their side. Yeah. And, and we've seen it and, and you touched on it exactly to the point where you, like, you get comfortable working with something and like as a, as an observer, right. You look at the, uh, the MP20 line and you had the chromoly face forged chromoly face of the hot metal blade. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you obviously were able to forge the material you're able to weld with it and then it must have become okay now that we've been able to achieve that in this as like the test sample for and obviously there's prototypes involved but like yeah producing it at a scale producing it where it's going to work and we can bend it and it's fittable and we have a product that's going to work really well it's time for to release it within this family okay now we've been able to prove that point of concept can mm -hmm. we forge the entire thing is that kind of how that works for you like, okay now we've got a proof now let's go to yep. the next part. We can push it. Absolutely. And, and what's funny is we, we tell so many stories on our golf club. Like if you just look at the back of it, you're getting half the story. If you read our hosel, we tell you so much of what's going on. So we'll say Grand Flow Forge, Grand Flow Forge HD, 1025E, 1025 Boron, Chromali. And it, what's interesting about like a Chromali material is it started in the hot metal world. So it started with a cast club. And our cast golf clubs, if you look at it, it says Chromali 4140M. So 4140M is a, is a special uh, makeup of Chromali that we've used that's optimized for the casting process. Then if we, as we've brought Chromali into the MP20 line and now the JTX 921 line, what you'll see is on the hot metal blade where we were only forging the face and the neck, it's a Chromali 4135. So 4135, it's a little bit softer because it needs to be softer to be able to flow into a forging mold. Even then, because the face is very flat and then there's a neck on there and then we go in and mill out or, or machine out the hosel, you don't have to have the, a ton of material flow on it. So if you look at the 921 uh, forged, it's a Chromali 4120. 
So even on the hosel, it says it's a different grade of chromoly. So then it's taking it and it's saying, well, how can we use this material? What do we need to do to that material to be able to forge the entire head? So to get the, the sole and the, and the cavity how we want it, it takes a different material. So it's always looking at every bit of it, of the process, of the material, of everything to try to get the performance levels. That's, uh, yeah, I think it's very interesting. And I know we, when you guys had the initial teaser drop, we were looking at, I was doing the like zoom in to like look at the hosel and okay, they've got a material here. There's like, there's something going on. Cause as you say, right, your golf clubs do tell a lot of the story of what's really going on with them. Right. Uh, because people can't see inside, they don't know the material, but you guys actually put that on the outside of the golf club. Mm -hmm. Um, now that, uh, that actually, so now to that point about the different materials, do the forging dies, do those last uh, as long? Do they, do they have a shorter lifespan or hit number based on because the material is different? Is, that, is that, that something that factors in? That's a great question. It does absolutely factor in. And the material really factors in how many strikes are necessary to get something to its shape. So, for example, like a, like a 1025E, is, it's a very soft material. And that one, the forging mold's going to last the longest. The material's going to flow the best. It's going to get to its shape very easily. A chromoly 4120, it's not going to flow as easily. And because of that, the strikes wear the mold quicker. So they're going to wear out faster. And it's going to take more strikes to get it to its shape. So an interesting thing is like forging the... Uh, the JPEX 921 forged, we actually had to develop a third set of precision forging molds, which is a, an additional process that, you know, again, it adds time, it adds money, it adds everything to making that golf club. So traditionally what we do is we have a couple of what we call the, um, the rough forgings, the, the hammer presses, and then it goes through two rounds of precision, which is a hydraulic press. Now we actually have a third round of precision to get it to its shape. So it does, it, every material, every little bit of it is a, involved in how you, how you manufacture it. And that's where our partnership is so, so valuable because you know, if we just walked up to a, you know, we went to a random forging house and said, we want you to make this, who knows if we could get there and who knows if we could get as much out of every material that we can. Actually, I, I know the answer, we couldn't. So it's, it's something pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I've seen the videos before. I think it's it's uh, it's one of the cool things. I, I probably watch it a few times a year, and I'm looking at stuff. Where I'm like trying to click. Oh yeah, this is like this is how all this stuff is really made. It's it's pretty fascinating to watch. Um, so with the new line coming out, you know, um, how much from the design perspective goes into tour players? Because that's what I want to. I just want to kind of touch on that a little bit as well because. We've seen, we've seen great success with the, the 900 JPX 900. Obviously, won a few majors. The uh, 919 yep. went on to win a couple more. Um, and so you have this uh, this feedback where someone's people players are looking at it going, okay, this is what I like. This is what, like how it works. And you guys obviously have a lot of players that use your clubs that aren't being paid as well. Um, mm -hmm. Is there a is it like a, a looks perspective that you're trying to achieve with tour players so there's something they're comfortable with? Because I kind of think of it like you know, if you work for the, the Corvette design team, obviously the new one is, the new one is very, very different. So we can, it's like, right. it's, it's like the 921 forged of Corvettes now, right? It's <laughs> right. a very different thing. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's still going to look like a Corvette, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's where automotive, automotive design to me is always fascinating kind of as a, as a parallel to golf clubs. Yep. So when you take these golf clubs to tour players, who are, are going to be very specific. 
Are they going to say, oh, I like this. Can you do, can you tweak that? Or is it you saying like, this is how it's going to look guys. What do you think? So a lot of the feedback we get from them is a dress shape and soul turf interaction and feel. Those are the big things we really rely on them for. It, what's funny is the back design, we almost try not to show them the back design. So what we do, our, our typical thing when we're doing a hit test is we'll hand them one and then we'll switch and we'll ha we won't let them see from behind what they're doing because they don't <laughs> need to understand what's going on back there. So where we, where we really like to lean on them is head shape and turf interaction. Turf interaction being a huge one, just because it's difficult to quantify and measure a lot of things. So, so the player feedback of turf interaction is huge. But you know, I'll, I'll give a perfect example of like the nine, the 921 tour. We leaned on them a lot. Uh, not only our staff players, but our non-staff players who are playing the, the 900 and 919 tours as well, where we wanted to understand from them, what do you like about your current clubs? What do you wish it did different? What do you wish it did better? What does it do great? And really try to focus on each of those things. So the, um, with those, one of the bits of feedback we kept getting, oh, give me one second. So I'm so sorry. There's a, there's no an alarm going or something. So we were talking about, uh, tour player feedback and soul design. So I'll let you continue, uh, where you were. Yeah. So soul design is one of those things we really lean on tour players for just because it's one of those things that's, it's tough to quantify. Like, you know, we, we really dial in very precise measurements in terms of the camber, the bounce angles and different parts of the sole. And we make sure those are really well, basically like designed into it, but then to get the feedback, those tour players are so good at that. So that's something we lean on them a lot for is, is what, what's their feeling of how a club enters and exits the turf, particularly on like a, a scoring iron of a JPEX tour, their feedback is so valuable. So we really lean on them for that. Feel, we love doing field tests with them because it, it's one of those things that each player's feedback is a little bit different. We know which players like softer. We know which players like firmer. And just to confirm some of the theoretical things we do, we lean on them a lot for that. And then a great example of leaning on their, uh, their preference is the 921 tour. Part of the feeling was the 919 tour had lost a little bit of the workability that the JPEX 900 tour had. And a lot of that came from how it was weighted, where the center of gravity lived, how far towards the toe versus, to, versus being a little bit shorter. So that was one thing we did. We took their feedback and said, okay, we can make this golf club a little bit more workable. So we love leaning on tour players and just getting their feedback on at every stage of development. So from a, like a design cadence point of view, the, the, the 900, JPEX 900 would, was obviously a very workable golf club. And then the 919 got a lot more stable on mm -hmm. heel toe uh, while still offering workability. And now you've got offered similar stability, but a lot, I kind of worked a little bit more workability back into the, the product. Is that be a good way to describe it then? That's right. So, you know, there, there's two ways to talk about stability. There's stability in terms of like moment of inertia, like how forgiving is it in terms of MOI? And there's stability in terms of, how much control the head wants to have versus the player. And that's where typically uh, a shorter, we call CG to shaft axis, how far the center of gravity lives from that axis determines how workable a golf club is. So that's part of why a blade is so workable is because that CG to shaft axis is traditionally very small. So our goal for the 921 tour was to maintain or increase the MOI 
So make it just as stable on off-center hits in terms of distance from the sweet spot, in terms of how much twisting there was, but make it more workable by bringing that CG to shaft axis closer. And that's what we were able to do. So it's a golf club that's very stable, meaning you'll get consistent results, but we added some more workability into it. Yeah, so there's like the horizontal from top to bottom, or sorry, mm -hmm. vertical, top to bottom, and then horizontal, but then there's also horizontal relative to the shaft, which is where the player will feel they're able to either like close the face a little bit more or they feel like they are able to leave it open a little easier uh, right. oft oftentimes. And I think it's, that's the interesting point because when it comes to like, uh, like better players, when they do build those combo sets, you have people that will hit. Uh, I've heard better players say like they get a, a club that has a much longer uh, heel toe length, although it's more forgiving. And they'll mm -hmm. say, I feel like I miss it right more, even though like it's a more forgiving club. And it's like, well, that's just because you know, relative to what you're using, it's going to have a different rate of closure yep. and all these kind of things are going to factor in. So, you know, either you make an adjustment to the club or you, you have to kind of make an adjustment to your golf swing while you're going to something like that. That's exactly right. I mean, the easiest way I like to describe it is, you know, you talk about the closure rate, you know, you've seen on drivers where you put more weight on the heel. What that does, that brings that CG closer. So it wants to close quicker, but at the same time, there's, there's the, there's the moment about the shaft axis. And what I talk, when I'm talking about that, I mean, if a golf club has a longer CG distance, it takes more force, it takes more energy to get that toe closing. So that's why some people feel like if the club is longer from heel to toe, it wants to hang out to the right. It's the closure rate, but it's also if I want to try to turn it over, it's not as easy to because it takes more effort. It takes more of a moment to do that. Yeah, and, it, and, we've, and we talked about it with the release of the drivers uh, a little while ago and how... Mm -hmm. You know, the plane at which the shaft enters the head versus like upright versus and then which will change their axis, uh, change their center of gravity relative to the shaft on a driver kind of does mm -hmm. the same thing because you have the 200X, which has a, a different um, I yep. entrance plane, which also exactly. has a different like line and obviously head weight, all these different little, I call them, which I think a lot of people call them like mechanisms or levers. So we're mm -hmm. going to pull, we know that we can pull this lever to make it do this. And we're going to pull this lever to make it do this. And from one to 10, where are we going to place all these different levers to yep. achieve the desired goal and have it feel and look and do all the things that we want it to do? I think that's a great way to, great way to think about it. Cause you're right. I mean, it's, it's all physics and we, you, you can't rewrite physics. It's what part, what physics lever are we going to pull because of a design goal that we want for each one? Now, before we go, the one thing, or not before we go, but there's a couple more things I want to touch on quickly. Um, <laughs> We've got something really new with the the forge, like the forge clubs in the the JPX series, and that is the we brought SEL to JPX. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know that'll be good for you guys up in Canada as well. So yeah, <laughs> so no, we, the um, general target market is hockey players, <laughs> I guess. What's funny is you know it's there's a couple of ways of looking at how you launch left-handed golf clubs, and Mizuno I think has traditionally been guilty of saying okay, this one has the highest sales volume potential. So if you look at like, you know, and all, obviously that's going to live from the highest handicap golf club has the highest sales volume potential. The muscle back has the lowest. And I think we, we know that in terms of how many golfers there are and who buys golf clubs. If you want to look at it strictly from a business thing, then what, what you'd expect from Mizuno would be, we're gonna bring the two most forgiving golf clubs and make them left-handed and just go from there. But ultimately, 
the left-handed number is not going to make or break us as a company because it, it is still a relatively small percentage of what we sold. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to service that market with golf clubs that we haven't brought to them in the past or not in, or in a number of years, I should say. So we started it with the MP20 SEL last year where we hadn't made a muscle back for the lefty in a long time. On the JPX side, the JPX Tour, we've never offered that golf club for a left-handed player. So what we wanted to try to do is offer that club, but at the same time, we want to look at what, what levels of playability are built into that and how are people actually buying that set? Because a lot of people who buy that, that JPX Tour set are comboing that set. So we built that into a comboed set just because we feel like that's, you're going to get the more playability out of it. And it's going to be, it's probably going to fit more players and even players who thought they wanted from top to bottom, they probably don't and they probably don't need it. So we're trying to make, build a more playable set for the lefty. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because uh, as we have discussed in the past and with the, um, the 20s was a good example of the fact that, you know, you, you have data that shows how players combo through fitting because 80% of your, your sales are through fitting. So you have that information of what's getting fit to players. So you could say like, you know, we don't need to make a three iron in this set of golf clubs because we're not right. really, we're not really going to sell them. And we don't think that people actually should use it because of the loft and the center of gravity, and all these different things and out of options and optimizing and playing better. Probably not a great idea. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a reason I still have an MP14 one iron, but there's no one iron <laughs> that you guys make anymore. So right. um, with that in mind, again, it comes down to like shaping and those kind of things. So going from left-handed back to the right-handed set talk well, in general is uh, the JPX 921 Tour, you have done something with that club as well. That was the first time it's really done, or you've done with the JPX model, and that has taken it to the the grinding, the master craftsman mm -hmm. that shaped the MP line and brought that shaping and that final hand touch to those golf clubs for even just a more refined transition club to club and, and how that's going to set up behind the ball. Yeah, so that's something that traditionally had been reserved for the MP side. And MP, what we do is we design it in 3D, we'll cut a 3D model, or basically a CNC model based off of the actual CAD design, and then we'll work with a master craftsman to grind the shape perfect. And we've done that years, for as long as I know, for, on an MP golf club. On a JPX or an MX back in the day, that was a step that we never really took. We would actually go just straight from 3D design to cut a mold from there. But as the JPX Tour has really evolved to be such a tour-focused golf club and such a big part of our, our fitting strategy and our tour strategy, we wanted to try to take it an extra step in terms of the sophistication of it. So yeah, that's a step that had never been done on a JPX model before that we integrated to the JPX 921 Tour this time. Because, you know, if you looked at our MP line in the past, it used to have a shallow cavity, a muscle back, an MMC, and all these other things. And it's like the JPEX Tour has almost taken over for that shallow cavity. So with that in mind, we still wanted to speak to that player on the MP side. So I talked about looking at clubs that address with the Tour. The address shape is where we touch a ton of that stuff with the Master Craftsman. And that's why we took that extra step with the 921 Tours. Yeah, I think it's, really, it's a neat story to tell, but there's also like a, a – uh... A visual and like a physical difference when you set it down I think that's a that's a big component because I know um, to talk about some people who work on golf clubs like Don White from National mm -hmm. Customs 
and I've talked to Patrick many times and I know you guys work with their, your, their ferals as well. You did a really yep. cool run uh, with the Boyd blade and feral stuff on the limited edition copper irons mm-hmm. was how like the transition from club to club and how they look is so important. And when you get someone who knows how to shape a golf club to fit someone's eye, obviously they're doing sets for individuals. You have, you're fitting sets for segments and you know that someone's going to look at it and go, that heel's a little high or that toe's yep. a little more rounded than we want to see. And because they're working within, we could call it, you know, the Corvette looks like a Corvette and still transitions. Like an MP club is going to look like an MP club and a JPX is going to look like a JPX club. But mm-hmm. it's kind of melding of the two to create something new and create something different while also, you know, staying true to the, the form and the function of what it's designed to do. Absolutely. And it, it, what the craftsmen are able to do in terms of working golf clubs and getting the shape absolutely perfect it's really, it's, it's something that I, I'm jealous of. You know, I, I can do whatever clicks I need to do to make it look really close to what I think I want it to look like. But to see a finished product after the craftsmen have touched it and really dialed in the hosel transition, the way the top line moves into the hosel, that's such a tricky area because you have basically what's going from a flat coming off the top line that transitions into a perfect cylinder. And to let, have that look exactly organic yet still be highly engineered and actually the exact you know specifications you want it's something that the cad and the creo or you know whether solidworks or whatever form you're using it's difficult to pull off on that and to, to be able to lean on a craftsman to dial that in it's just a really cool step of like science and art combining i know there's the the video out there like nick faldo talking about uh, turbo doing like the hosels and things mm-hmm. like that and i always think of if you ever watched a player Actually, I think Nick says it as well in like one of the older videos is that hosel to, to top line transition where they can get in there and you just see someone like the way they hold their hands. And I've, I've done a fair amount of like wedge grinding. Irons is not, mm-hmm. I've done a few sets of irons as well, but not, it's not my day to day. So even right. like, I always try and start with the three iron because I think to myself, I script the three iron and I'm grinding it well. It's a three <laughs> right. iron. Someone's not going to pull that off. And, but when you get into those wedges and you start, you know, getting in little angles and trying to get up against the wheel, you realize how just like, a very artistic way to put it like maybe I'm overthrowing the analogy here but it's like the way you can put pressure onto the bristles of a paintbrush and, and create like a different texture or whatever yeah I'm not a painter so that maybe is off an analogy but either way <laughs> the pressure and the angles and all these different things make a difference and that you know if someone pressed a little too hard or something then you know you got to go back and start with another one but I have a feeling it doesn't happen too often with the, <laughs> the guys you're no, working with they're they're really good and what what's amazing is how a golf club that has a very locked hosel face, leading edge, top line, all of those are going to lead to one look at a dress. But then just how you can feather in little bits in between those, like how you can make that transition, can really affect what a player sees and feels in terms of what that club feels or looks like it's going to do at a dress. And Faldo is, I mean, he's known for being the best in the world at understanding that. And he, he's been like that his entire life where you know for him to pick out a set of irons he'll go and say i need to see all your four irons i'm going to pick the best looking one that Mm -hmm. looks to my eye like it's going to do what i want it to do and it's amazing how just little bits of like you said a tiny bit of pressure just underneath the hosel just as it's transitioning to the leading edge can make that club look like it's going to go straight it can make it look like it's going to go left it can make it look like it's going to go right where physically it's not going to do any of those things, but yeah. ultimately it puts in here what you see that doing and helps you deliver the club to the ball better. 
Yeah, I mean, we used to see it with like uh, set like set face hosels on drivers. I remember working in big box, kind of mm-hmm. going back to that. If I wanted a driver, I'd put two or three down. If I knew I was going to get one, and I was like, okay, well, nothing's all shut. This one's now. This one's good, and I would like go hit that yeah. one, right? Just because you, I mean, you have that opportunity when they're like there's six or seven sitting there in the same kind of loft or whatever. But you see it as well with uh, the MP18 Fly High. I have a couple mm-hmm. of those. I still really like that golf club. Um, the the back of it's mirrored because you see it from mm-hmm. a dress. Yep. But when you set it down, because it's mirrored, you see the turf or whatever it's on. So it kind of makes the club look a lot smaller than it really is. And that's mm-hmm. a finish thing. That's not even like someone touching it. I mean, someone's going through the finishing process and buffing that part of the golf club or mirroring it. And the next thing you know, it appears different again. The tricks you can do in cosmetics are amazing. Like it, it's so funny how many times – and you see it, you talked about looking at different drivers and picking the right driver. It's what's funny is I bet a lot of those measured the same face angle, but the way the, the paint line transitions as it, as it falls yeah. off the, as it falls off the top, like we've had, we've gone through driver fittings where it's like, you know, all the numbers are great, but a player says, I'm not quite comfortable. It looks like it's going to hook to me. And you literally could take a little, take a razor and just take a little bit of paint off the toe. Oh, oh, looks great done like it's it's yeah. amazing how much those little cosmetic things can make can have an effect on how a player perceives a golf club i always think if you see like a cheaper driver and this is i'm not to pick on any like major oh yeah but if you go and see like a discount driver like a house brand mm-hmm. or something where that one's not really designing it per se like someone is in like a foundry and like they're buying it over model or whatever it happens to be yep that transition from the top to the toe is usually very sharp Yep. And a lot of times it's going to look very closed. And again, they're, they're maybe appealing to their target market. That's totally fine. Right. But if I was to look at it, I'd say, you know, it sits shallow. Maybe it is, does sit square. And it's just because of that paint line. Mm-hmm. And even just like eye dominance and putter alignment can play such a huge role in, in what's going on with that. You're exactly um, right. If you, go, if you go and look at drivers, obviously there's the face, there's the crown, there's the toe and the, the skirt going around. And you're right, cheap drivers – a lot of times the paint ends at the face. If you look at a Mizuno, a TaylorMade, a Titleist, a Callaway, a Cobra, what a ping, you see that the, the, the paint goes and then it falls and it, and it sweeps this way. And it does that for a reason because cosmetically it looks different. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's always very interesting to like compare the two when you look at something that doesn't look right versus something that does because, you know, you could say, oh, it looks, that toe looks sharper than the other, but then if you get them really close, you're like, oh, they're actually very similar, but right. you know, this one is uh, very different because of the paint and the lines and the time that goes into it and that equates to cost and all kinds of other factors. Mm-hmm. So to finish up, Chris, I really appreciate your time with all of this. Um, of I have to ask, with all these new irons coming out, any changes to your golf bag? <laughs> so I'm, I'm working on that right now. So what Right now, I've been playing T7 wedges. I've been playing uh, 919 Tour irons, and I've been playing MPH5, so actually like an older model of like the fly high you were talking about. And I'm putting together right now a set. I've actually got, I don't know if you can see right over here, I've got all my shafts and grips right there measured <laughs> out and getting ready to go. And um, what my plan right now is I'm going to put together some, uh, some T20, basically like a pitching wedge, gap wedge, and he has 21, 58 degree, which I'm excited to really get out and play on the course to really see how that works. 
and then uh, I'm going to do some 919 tours. And then on the long iron side, I'm going to I'm going to try to eliminate a club because I've got a three and a four iron that are only two degrees or sorry, three degrees apart. And I'm going to try to go to actually the lofts of our SEL irons. So what I'm going to try to do is go exactly four degrees everywhere. And I'm going to build my longest. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm going to build it with an HMB, about a half inch long with a lighter shaft, which will be something different that I haven't tried. Because right now I've been playing AMT forever, which it is a lighter shaft in the three iron, but I'm talking going to like a 85 gram graphite or something to try that. So I'm excited to try it and to get out. And I know a lot of people are playing a lot of golf right now, and I know I have. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm excited to get out and, and take it to the course. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, uh, it's always fun to like build a new golf bag and, and go through that uh, transition period. Uh, and we see that with, like, like to use that example with tour, right? You see a lot of people using those hot metal pros in those mm -hmm. longer irons and you're obviously going to try something different, but adjusting the length, taking out those long irons and giving yourself more wedges is always, always a good, uh, a good, a good idea for scoring. Let's put it that way. Yes. It's funny how, if you look at my bag setup and, and my loft progressions, they're not what you'd think they would be from someone with an, as much access to equipment and measurement and stuff like that. My, my wedges, I have a 46 degree, a 51 and a 58. So I've got like a, a you know, a, what is that? Six degree jump and a seven degree jump in the area where you think you don't want such big jumps, but that's the whole thing of it's like, I've learned when I was, getting closer to the green when I was call it a hundred yards or 90 yards. And I had four wedges in there. It's just like too many options. It's like, it became where I liked having bigger jumps because I knew there was a clear answer as to what I should be hitting right there. And it helped me commit to it better. But that being said, I'm about to make room for one more club. So it might, it might work its way back in there. Maybe I'll add a 64. Who knows? There you go. Uh, yeah. I, it's funny. Cause I did the, I did the same thing a long time ago. I used to do like the 52, 56, 60, and I just didn't, I was somewhere I'd look at one golf club after like two weeks. I'm like, I haven't pulled you because I wasn't right. comfortable hitting you or I didn't, I wasn't sure. I was like, I just hit this one because I know I'm comfortable hitting it. And it's a yep. good, it's a good thought process for average golfers to, I know we talk so much about wedges, but if you're not confident in hitting a golf club or hitting a certain shot, like I use my, I rarely use my 58 at often mm -hmm. just because I know that I can get my 54 and I can hit a, like a lower spinning shot and I can yeah. get all the stuff out of it that I really want. And then when I'm into deep stuff, you get the 58 out. It's like the, okay, it's, it's the extra ripcord on the parachute. You just right. you know to need it in case of emergency only. So, uh, Chris, as always, I really appreciate your time and uh, look forward to, uh, you know, hopefully me talking in person uh, one day soon. Yes, definitely. And if you make it down to Atlanta or maybe we meet up at Sweetens or something, we got we to gotta make something happen soon. Sign me up for Sweetens Cove. <laughs> awesome. Ryan, always great, and I love, love talking to you, and uh, anytime I can help with anything for, for any part of WRX, you know I'm happy to do that. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Chris. Awesome. Have a great one.